Hello, I'm your host, Vlad Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record the show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lotzio.ca. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Unisoft Question. And my guest today is Trish Callen, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Sun Life Financial Canada. Hello, Trish. Good morning, Poulat. It's really good to have you. You probably already know that I always start with the roots. I always start with where you come from because that's what people want to know. Yeah. And uh, my traditional question now is, are you originally from Toronto? I am not. I am okay. not. I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in northwestern Ontario. I'm from Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay. You, you're from the Thunder Bay crowd. The Thunder I, Bay crowd. I know That's quite right. a few people from the north from northern Ontario. I oh, used to okay. think I used to think that Muskoka <laughs> was northern Ontario. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but then then my friends uh educated me and then i realized not even close get, yeah <laughs> you have to drive a little bit further like by 20 hours further it's true it's it's a long drive from toronto yeah yes yeah. It's, it's very interesting so northern ontario what is it like growing up uh, in thunder bay and then uh, ending up basically uh one of the uh, top five legal <laughs> leaders in in the country so uh, explain your origins. Who were your parents? How did you grow sure. up? What was it like? Sure, sure. Th thanks for asking. Um, so I come from quite a large family. I'm I'm one of eight children, uh, seven girls and one boy, and I'm I'm the youngest uh, of of uh, in my family. And so um, growing up in Thunder Bay was fantastic in the sense that um, you know we had. Uh, a lot of freedom, um, spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, you know, there was always lots of activity with a family that large. Um, my mom uh, stayed at home, but was very involved in the community, um, did a lot of, you know, volunteer work. And as, um, you know, her family got grew, grew and she had more time, you know, she, she really got involved in, in the community in terms of, you know, sitting on board. So, demonstrated for me, you know, the importance of, um, of community involvement. And my father uh, was a lawyer. Um, so he, um, he was uh, an, an engineer. Um, and then um, he was in, uh, in the war, uh, and then came back from World War Two. And um, they were offering um, free tuition uh, for people who had been in the war to go to law school and so he um, took advantage of that opportunity um, went to Osgood and then uh, it, both of my parents were from northwestern Ontario different places Timmins and North Bay but when my father graduated he and my mother got in the car with I'm not sure how many kids there were at that time but probably three or four and drove all around northwestern Ontario 
to find the best place for my father to open up his practice. And they landed on Thunder Bay, which at the time was there were two cities, Port Arthur and Fort William. They amalgamated in 1970 and became Thunder Bay. But at that time, um, they chose Port Arthur. They thought it was a good place for my father to start his practice and, and to raise a family. And so my father had his own practice. Um, and as is the case with many lawyers who operate in small communities, he did different types of law. He didn't he didn't specialize, really. He did quite a bit of family law. He did criminal law, um, you know, commercial contract type stuff. Um, but in his um, practice of family law, he mostly represented women. Uh, who were separating or divorcing um, from their uh, partners. And the observation that he made in that work is that, um, you know, women were very financially, often very financially vulnerable. Not only did they not understand finances, either because their husband, you know, hadn't shared it with them or they hadn't kind of had the time or inclination to engage in it, um, but they also, you know, they weren't, earning an income on their own they weren't they were totally reliant on their spouse for their financial security and so one of the um you know lessons really from my father and one of the things that he and my mother stressed a lot was um having financial security i remember my father saying to me and and to all of my siblings uh, but especially because he had seven girls um you know you can't depend on anyone else for your financial security you need to you know um, do that yourself and he saw an education as the way to do that you get a good education and then you can get a good job and then you can be um you know financially secure so that's one lesson that i had you know from a very young age so i you know i I uh, I always knew that I was going to be pursuing some kind of higher education with a means of, you know, getting a, a good job. Um, and then they also had another rule, which is that it was expected that we were all going to pursue post-secondary education, but that we were not going to do that in Thunder Bay, that he they wanted us to go somewhere else, experience, you know, something else. So sort of the, the two things that I remember, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the learnings from my parents were, you know, financial security, and you need to kind of go out and, and forge your own path. And, um, you know, I was interested in the law from a very young age, um, mostly because my father worked a lot. And I figured, well, it must be pretty interesting if he's working all the time. <laughs> you know, he would um, he would come home for dinner. I remember it very clearly. He would come home for dinner. We'd have dinner at six o'clock. We'd all be sitting around the table. Um, and, you know, we'd have a conversation as, as, as calm as that can be with like seven or eight kids around the table. It was always pretty chaotic. Um, we'd have dinner, he'd go upstairs and he'd have a short nap and then he'd go back to the office until, you know, 10 or 10 or 11 at night. So I figured, well, it must be pretty interesting if he's putting in, you know, the, those long hours. So I was very interested, um, in a legal career from a very young age. Um, and then the other thing that my father did um, was, uh, you know, he really encouraged me to, um, you know, become bilingual. He thought that, you know, having another language and in Canada, certainly at the time, you know, French was um, uh, an obvious choice. And so he encouraged me to do that. And so when I um, went to university, I went to Western, um, my undergraduate degree is in um, French language and literature. 
Um, so not not the typical path necessarily for for law school, but it was you know a real a real passion of mine. And then um, I stayed at Western for law school. Um, at the time, Western was the only law school that had any kind of program where I could pursue my French. They had an exchange program with Lavelle, which I I took part in. I I studied at Lavelle for a term. Um, when I was there. So that's that's really why I chose Western. Um, so that's, uh, in a nutshell, kind of how I ended up pursuing a legal career. And, and um, you know, I, I, once I was at Western, I was sort of in, you know, southwestern Ontario. So it, it became, you know, kind of a logical step to, uh, to think about, um, you know, Toronto as a, as a place to start my career. Are you still bilingual? I call myself rustily bilingual. Um, I, I I have some occasion to to use my French in my current role at Sun Life. I've had other roles, um, you know, where I've had more opportunity. Um, so you know, once I start speaking, it it kind of comes back quickly. But I'm always a bit. We have a lot of, um, you know, you may know that Sun Life has a large presence in Quebec. Um, very strong business there. We have a lot of. Um, uh, bilingual people, you know, within Sun Life and on the executive team. So um, I do have the opportunity to practice it, but I'm I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I can be a little bit shy, um, especially when I'm with my bilingual colleagues. But they're very supportive of that. Sun Life was founded in Montreal, wasn't it? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, we've got an iconic office building there. It's 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 worth a visit if you're if you're ever there. Wow, that'd be great. So it's really interesting. Sun Life is one of those Canadian champions, I would say. It's a truly Canadian company mm -hmm. by origin. It was founded in Montreal. It was founded in, uh, uh, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that must be right. <laughs> it's always, it's all, it's often accurate, right? So mm -hmm. uh, in 1865. Yep. And uh, eventually, uh, it landed its uh, HQ in Toronto. Uh, you know how, uh, just like uh, many people moved to Toronto eventually. You know, I well, there was a big, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there was a quite a controversy about that when Sun Life moved its head office from Montreal to Toronto. In fact, we still hear about it from time to time. Um, you know, because uh, if you're of a certain age, if you went to school in Quebec, that would be, you know, in your history lesson about this exodus of, you know, Canadian company head offices from from Montreal to Toronto. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that um, our president of Sun Life Canada is Jacques Goulet, um, who himself is from from Quebec, from Shawinigan. And, you know, under his leadership and the very strong, um, you know, Quebec leadership team that we have, we've really, um, you know, kind of established ourselves as a as a as a force in the Quebec market and, and kind of left that um, <laughs> a little bit challenging history behind. So I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Sun Life's uh, corporate structure. This is a given. You're uh, the general counsel. <laughs> You're taking care of that. So uh, on your LinkedIn profile, uh, you are a senior VP and general counsel of Sun Life Financial Canada. Right. This is what it says, right? So, right. And then, and then there is also a reference to Sun Life Financial Inc. Mm -hmm. Right. So is there any difference? Is it the same organization? Is Sun Life Financial Canada a business name for Sun Life Financial Inc.? So Sun Life Financial Inc. is the top 
public company. Um, and then uh, underneath that, as you can imagine, there are a number of different subsidiaries. Sun Life Assurance Company of Canada is the Canadian insurance company. And so I'm general counsel for Sun Life's Canadian business. And then I have counterparts in Asia. There's a general counsel in the U.S., um, there is uh, a, a chief compliance officer globally who's part of the um, senior legal leadership team. And we report into Melissa Kennedy, who is the chief legal officer for all of Sun Life Global. So she kind of sits at the at the top of the house, if I can put it that way, um, at Sun Life Financial Inc. And then she's got a team that um, supports the the uh, the businesses in our different markets. So the businesses that operate in different markets, are they substantially similar in the nature of their business or are there significant differences between, let's say, the U.S. market, the Canadian market, the Asian market? Yeah, there, there are differences for sure, which have, you know, kind of de developed over time. I mean, at a, at a high level, we are um, an insurance uh, and asset management company. And so that's, you know, the, the bulk of our operations. But, um, you know, in Canada... We have a broad range of um, products and services that we offer um, it, to retail clients. So, you know, individuals who want to purchase, you know, ins term insurance or universal life insurance or mutual funds, we offer all of those products. <clears throat> we also operate uh, in the group market. So um, companies who have, you know, benefits and uh, retirement products for their employees, we enter into arrangements with those companies to offer benefit plans um, to, to the employees. And we're, you know, one of the largest um, players in that market in Canada. Um, and then in the U.S., our focus is more, you know, in, um, on the group side, in the group markets, um, in the various countries in Asia in, in which we operate. I would say, you know, it's a combination of insurance and asset management and mostly, um, you know, in the in, in the individual space, not as much as the group space. So there are differences among the markets, but it's all insurance and asset management. So explain this. Uh, combination insurance and asset management why is an insurance company managing assets or why is an asset management company selling insurance well there are strong connections between the two in the sense that when we sell for example an insurance policy to an individual that's a very long-term commitment that we make to that person. We say that in, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years when you die, for example, if it's a, if it's a life insurance policy, we'll be there and we'll pay your beneficiary the face amount of the policy. In order to do that, we have to invest in very long-term assets to support those liabilities. So we are experts in asset management. So it's not a very big leap to go from that to offering asset management products to our clients as well. And so our purpose, uh, Pulat, is to help people achieve lifetime financial security and live healthier lives. And the way that we help people do that is by 
um, providing them with, you know, what we call protection products. So that's on, you know, the insurance side, whether it be life insurance or health insurance or disability insurance, either directly to individuals or through their employer. And then also, you know, retirement savings plans. So investments like mutual funds and segregated funds. So that's kind of the financial um, security part of it. And then the living healthier lives comes through our um, our group benefits business where, you know, we offer the health and dental and medical benefits that, you know, so many employers offer to, to their employees. And, um, you know, we're very active in um, the, the digital health space. We have a, a platform called Luminal Health that's available to all Canadians where you can find information if you're looking for example, you know, you need to see a chiropractor and you want to do a search and find a chiropractor in your area. You know, it's got significant search capabilities. So, um, you know, we're uh, as part of our living healthier lives purpose, we um, support, you know, Canadians and, and, and all people really in, you know, getting information about their health and looking after their health. And of course, there's a close connection between financial health and physical health and mental health. Tell me about it. Well, if you're, if it you're, was, it was more of a joke. Tell me about <laughs> okay, it. It you're was, living. Was, I see what yeah, you mean. It was more. It was more like I totally agree with you. Because, I understand. <clears throat> I, I'm a sole practitioner. I, I understand the connection yes. very well. Yes, and yes, exactly. I understand uh, the effects of uh, financial precariousness. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and I also came to Canada several decades ago as as an immigrant. So, right. Uh, I definitely understand the. Uh, effects of financial precariousness and the importance of long-term investment and long-term uh, financial path. So right. uh, thank you for explaining the connection between asset management and insurance, uh, life insurance specifically in, in this case. I totally get it. But what you said made me think about something. Mm -hmm. I, I ponder, if I may put it this way, insurance on a regular basis. Okay. Both professionally, because I'm a litigator and I'm involved in insurance claims sometimes, and uh, personally, because I, I have some insurance policies. Mm -hmm. I drive, so I must have car insurance. Right. I have my home insurance, so on and so forth. So when I think about insurance, I think about a, an event uh, uh, that must occur for uh, uh, for. Uh, for the claim uh, to be approved, for the payment to be made uh, by the insurance company. So insurance companies operate yeah. because these events are, are not uh, guaranteed. They, they, they can exist. They, they make business because uh, policyholders pay premiums, but insurance events will not necessarily happen. Right. It, it totally makes sense. It's, it's completely fair. That's you know, the gamble part of this whole infrastructure, society needs this infrastructure, it's pooling of resources to uh, compensate uh, victims of these events, right? Mm -hmm. But these events are nothing but certain. Uh, motor vehicle accidents, for example, right? Or, or, or injuries and things like that. So, but life insurance strikes me as sui generis. It strikes me as something very unique. There is nothing uncertain about death, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm yet to meet or hear about the person who never, who didn't die. True. Yet we call it insurance. So do you think there, uh, there is some kind of 
uh, disconnect here between life insurance and other types of insurance? Uh, or do you think life insurance is just a name for uh, what truly is asset management or, or, or wealth management? And uh, this name is used for regulatory purposes, for example. Could you shed some light on this? Or, or am I just off base and I just don't understand it? No, no, I, I don't think you're off base at all. You know, it, there's so much terminology um, that has been around for a long time. And, you know, it's something that we as an organization work very hard at. I'm I'm a huge champion of, of plain language. Um, and in fact, in my role, I've helped support the rollout of a tool that we use across the organization to help us write more clearly and simply. Um, so you can put in, you know, some text and we have, you know, what we call the Sun Life playbook. Like, you know, for example, we don't, we call our clients clients. Like we don't call them customers. We don't call them the other things. We call our clients clients. That's just, that's just one example. So you can put in, you know, some text that you're proposing, whether it be, you know, for an ad or, or, you know, a letter or anything like that. And it will give you suggestions on not only like, let's use the Sun Life, you know, plainer and simpler term terminology, but, you know, shorter sentences and break up the paragraphs and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I say that, Pulat, because, you know, life insurance is one of those terms. You're right. It's not all that intuitive, right? Like people don't wake up and say, oh, I'm going to buy myself a universal life insurance policy today. They wake up and say, I'm worried about my family. What happens if I get sick or I die? They're thinking about protection, Right. And so we when we're when we're talking to our clients, we do talk more about, you know, the protection aspect of our products and services. Right. Like you're protecting your family when you when you get insurance. And you know what? You're right. Life insurance is, you know, the only product where there's guaranteed to be an event that will trigger the payment of that of the proceeds of that policy because everyone will die disability insurance health insurance critical illness insurance you might not become disabled you not might not you know get cancer but it's about you know your risk tolerance right like how you know what is it that keeps you up at night does it keep you up at night worrying about like if i get sick i'm the i'm the sole you know breadwinner in my family and so if something happens to me we're really in trouble or do you you know do you feel like you've mitigated that risk and you don't need it like it's and that's where you know an advisor comes into play right their they, they their job is to get to know you understand you know your financial and other goals understand your risk tolerance and then recommend products that are suitable for you like not everybody you know needs or wants all of the products that we have to offer. This is fascinating. And I also admire your plain language efforts. Insurance law is not known. No. Plain language. Uh, no. Like you said, that has these deep roots that go way back when plain language wasn't in vogue. Yeah. Uh, I really admire your efforts. And you made me think about Caroline Mandel, one of the guests of my show. She was counseled to the Court of Appeal, to judges of the Court of Appeal, and now one of the leading... <laughs> Um, communication, uh, technical writing, and plain language experts uh, in Canada, right. I think. So yeah. she was a guest on the show also, and we talked oh. about plain language. And it yeah. really is heartwarming to know that people at your level 
who have uh, this influence and uh, respect uh, champion plain language because as a lawyer, I can tell you plain language makes a huge difference. And uh, I'm really thankful to you for leading those efforts. I want to talk about this about scale now. I, I said that your organization is large. You said that your organization is large. You lead the legal function in your organization. You also worked at all levels of scale in-house. Mm -hmm. I know that you articled uh, at a large basic firm. I think you articled at Blake's, right? Did yes, I did. But if I'm not mistaken, yes. if, if yes. I'm not mistaken uh, you went in house immediately after article, right? No, I didn't. No. I didn't. No, I, okay. I I stayed. Do you want to tell? Do you want me to yes. tell my, my, the shortened version of my story? Yes, let's do it. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when I was in law school, I thought I wanted to be a litigator. Um, I thought that was going to be my path. And, so, but I also thought, you know what, I should really, um, explore different areas of law. And so the way that I thought I would best do that is by articling at a large firm where I know they had a rotation system and you would, you know, spend a few months in litigation, a few months in corporate, like, you know, kind of work your way around the different areas of the firm. So that was my goal to get a position, uh, an articling position at a large firm, which I did. I, I articled at Blake's and um, I was hired back and I, um, but in my articles, um, in my litigation rotation, I did not like it at all. Um, I had a, a very bad experience. I was asked to go and argue a motion in front of a master who was, in my view, very, he was not a very nice person. There was some yelling involved and I, I walked away from that thinking, you know what, I don't need to do that ever, ever again. And also, as I observed the various litigation files that I was working on, they were going on for years. Like they just like it, to me, it seemed all this procedure and process and like, when are we going to resolve this? And then I did a corporate rotation where you know it was much more transaction based and i thought okay this is for me you know what we'll sell you the shares we'll take the money do the closing book you're done check it off on your list and you move on to the next thing that's a little more suited to my the way that i like to operate so that was good because you know i i discovered that what i really was more interested in was corporate and securities law and so i worked in the financial services group at blake's i worked in the securities group at blake's and you know while i liked it and i learned a lot uh, and i'm glad i stayed as long as i did um maybe sort of two years in i was starting to think i don't know if this is where i want to be forever and i i don't think i could have said it this way at the time but now that i've spent as long as i have in house i think what i was feeling was um far away from the action because you know the decisions were being made in another room on the deal and then i was you know because at that point i was very junior so i was at you know the very other end of the spectrum working on the closing documents you know getting it done but not really hearing you know what's the strategy what are our objectives you know all of those things i was you know papering the deal but not really involved in it so i felt i felt far away from that and i didn't feel um you know that and it's not that it was you know a bad culture at blake's at all i was i was treated well um, I had great 
you know, kind of mentors and, and, and teachers, but I also kind of didn't feel like it was, you know, there was um, a really strong culture of teamwork. Like, yes, develop young lawyers, but still, you know, partners were, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the way that lawyers are paid, it does not necessarily, it's not necessarily conducive to teamwork in the same way that, you know, the way that I'm paid at Sun Life, my fortunes rise and fall with the fortunes of the company. You know, I say that what keeps the president of Sun Life Canada awake at night keeps me awake at night. I'm completely aligned and completely engaged and completely accountable for, you know, all the business strategy and the advice that I give. I I, I see it through. But way back, you know, when I was a, uh, a second or third year lawyer at Blake's, I don't think I could have put it that way. But what happened was just as I was starting to think, maybe I'll I'll look around. I got a call from the managing partner who asked me if I would do a big favor for the firm and take a secondment at CIBC. CIBC was one of Blake's largest clients at the time, and they had a lawyer on their team who was going off on a, on a parental leave, and they needed someone to fill in. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And honestly, from almost the minute I walked in the door of CIBC and I started to see how they were operating and the, you know, the engagement that they were having with, um, you know, their business partners, I said, okay, this is it. This is, this is, this is what I'm meant to do. So I never did go back to Blake's. I, I finished the secondment. Unfortunately, the woman who I replaced came back. So there was no role for me, but I started looking around um, at financial institutions and I actually ended up at Sun Life. So Sun Life was my first in-house role. I only stayed for um, about 11 months because about six months in, my husband um, moved to Vancouver. So I was working in Toronto. We were living in Toronto, but he moved to Vancouver to start up the West Coast office of the firm that he was with at the time. And we did the long distance marriage for a while. And then I said, this is, this is stupid. I'm going to move to Vancouver, which I did. So I just, I left Sun Life, uh, and there was no, um, you know, no, no. Sun Life had no presence in terms of in-house lawyers in Vancouver at the time. At that time, there were two financial institutions who had in-house lawyers in Vancouver: TD Bank and a small life insurance company called Seaboard Life, which is now part of Industrial Alliance. So, I called them up and I said, "I'm moving to Vancouver. Would love to come and see you." And the general counsel at, at Seaboard Life, a woman named Joan Rush. Um, she was on her own. She was overloaded. She was a litigator. I was a corporate lawyer. They were doing lots of transactions. It was like she, I was, I mean, talk about right place, right time. She hired me on the spot. And, um, you know, I was there for, for five years. Um, and it was a totally different experience than Sun Life because they're so much smaller and it was only two of us on the legal team. So, um, you know, I did a, a wide variety of things and, um, you know, loved, loved every minute of it. Um, we had both of our kids were born in Vancouver. And then at a certain point, mo most of my family lives in Ontario. And so we didn't have any family in Vancouver. And and for me, you know, career wise, again, at the time, Vancouver is a very different in-house market now, but at the time it was pretty small. And so, you know, there were a lot more opportunities for me in Toronto and my husband had an opportunity to come back. So we came back. I'd always kept in touch with the people at CIBC. They had a spot for me in their insurance, uh, in their insurance operations. So I, I went back to work for them. 
Um, they then sold both their property and casualty and life insurance operations. So I helped wind all of that down. And then I stepped into um, a wealth management role supporting their wealth management business, which I loved. Great business partners, great people on, on the legal team. Um, and then after a while, I um, started to think about, um, you know, what else I might like to do or where my career was going to go. And, and sort of two things happened. I wanted to explore, um, you know, board work, sitting on boards of directors. I was on some of the internal boards at CIBC, but I, I could see that, you know, this is something that maybe further down the road in my career, I might want to do more of. Um, but at the time, uh, as an executive at CIBC, you couldn't sit on a public company board. And uh, so I thought, OK, well, that's that, that's interesting. If that's something that I want to pursue, you know, that's going to be a bit of a barrier for me. But also, I, um, you know, I wasn't sure that I saw kind of a clear path for my advancement at CIBC. And so I did something that probably a lot of people um, uh, thought didn't make much sense. But but I left. I, I voluntarily resigned. I said, you know what, I'm going to go off and, and, and follow a, a different path. Um, you know, it was it was pretty risky at the time. Uh, my husband is an entrepreneur. He's uh, I've I've always been the you know kind of the employee with the with the benefits. He's he's had his own businesses, um, and you know our kids were small. But uh, I remember him saying to me, you know, go go big or go home. Like I really I wasn't happy. I sort of couldn't see my path, and so um, I left, thinking that I was going to you know pursue board work, which which I did. Um, I did. I was on the board of Toronto Hydro and I was doing some not for profit work. But I also realized that, you know, I was I was too young. I still wanted to be part of a team and part of an organization. So um, I had kept in touch with um, the person who was our regulator when I was at CIBC at the Ontario Securities Commission. She had um, an investor protection project that she needed some help on. So I did that. I was, I was a consultant to the Ontario Securities Commission and do my board work, which then got me interested in um, having a national securities regulator in Canada because I could see sort of the challenges with, you know, the current system of a separate regulator in each province and territory. So I was in the right place at the right time when um, then Federal Finance Minister Jim Flaherty decided that he was going to, um, you know, really focus on having a national securities regulator. So I joined um, the organization that the federal government set up to work on that, the Canadian Securities Transition Office. Um, I was the chief legal officer there. Fascinating experience. I learned a lot. We didn't we didn't succeed. Um, but, you know, we, we got closer than anybody else ever has. Um, and as I say, I mean, it was it was an incredible, uh, incredible learning experience. And then just as I was thinking about, OK, you know, this isn't going to come together. Um, I, I need to start thinking about my next role. I got a call from Melissa Kennedy, who's my boss at Sun Life. And we had been colleagues at uh, CIBC she was she ran the litigation team and I was supporting the wealth management business and uh, she had just joined Sun Life as, as general counsel a few months before and she reached out to me and said you know I've got um, I've got a role there's someone who's retiring I'm trying to change the way that the legal function operates and you know I'd like you to come and help me with it and I was like Oh, that sounds that sounds really cool. And so I remember going home that night and saying to my husband, like, I think I might have this really interesting opportunity at Sun Life. 
And um, he said, well, that's great. And it's about time. And I said, what do you mean it's about time? And he said, well, you know, men start new roles in organizations and they reach out to their, you know, former colleagues and their trusted, you know, confidants and colleagues all the time and bring them in. And it's it's about time that women started doing the same thing. <laughs> so anyway, to make not a very long story um, even shorter, uh, that's how I came to be in my current role at Sun Life, which I love and which I really believe that all of the things that I did in my career led me to this role and led me to be qualified for the role like if i hadn't it, i could have stayed at cibc and i i probably would have had a, a good career but i took a big risk i went on and i did some other things so i've got that regulatory experience and you know it's as i say it's kind of led me to this um you know incredible role that i have at sun life this is a great story you know i wanted to ask you about uh the role of women are more senior than you in your career and i think you answer that question <laughs> you 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 would make you make a great interview guest uh, you uh, preempt my questions <laughs> this is this is the best well you worked at all scales you just told your story and i can see that you worked at all scales you worked at a firm for a few years in the beginning but then the rest of your career and your career now is in-house, mm -hmm. the legal department. Yeah. Please tell me how your day-to-day -day work evolved from the lowest rungs to where you are now. Yeah. Do you, do you even draft <laughs> anything today? Do you even do any law? Is it mostly a business role? Do you just um, push outside the council around, right? So, so how did your role evolve? from the beginning to uh, its condition now, its state now? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a really interesting question, Poulet. Um, You know, it, when I first started in-house in the roles that I would have, I would say it was more similar to the work that I was doing in private practice, with the exception that there was a much closer connection with the business, right? Like you're sitting around the table when they're having discussions about, you know, let's issue this new product or we're dealing with this regulatory issue because the way that we, the legal team at Sun Life operates. So I'm a member of the Canadian executive team. So I sit at that table with, with Jacques Goulet and, you know, the rest of the Canadian executive team. And then I've got, you know, vice presidents who report to me and they have people who report to them and so on all the way down at you know various leadership and project tables we are literally at the table as you know issues and strategies are being discussed and so you know you're doing the legal work like drafting the contract or commenting on the marketing materials um or you know to the extent that there's litigation we 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 i have a we have a very large litigation team um in canada and we in ontario we defend many of the actions ourselves so it's a bit of an unusual model a lot of insurance companies they you know exclusively use external counsel to defend their claims but we have a team of about a dozen litigators who who do that you know directly themselves and then you know across the country we use firms but but in any event um you know when when i first started in-house i would say you know there was more um traditional legal work that i was doing and then i think what changed was you know a big change for me was when i became a vice president at cibc and then i had a, a leadership role 
um, I was managing people and, you know, accountable for, you know, their development and, you know, thinking about succession planning within the legal team. I was also at that time, you know, I sat at the um, wealth management senior executive table. So that's sort of what what changes as you move up in an organization is that you have more leadership accountabilities. And, you know, I would describe, you know, the the legal work that I do as strategic advice. So I, I, I'm probably not, you know, drafting the prospectus or the contract. Um, if there are uh, strategic issues that come up on it, I'll be weighing in on that. Um, you know, the, often the way that I describe the difference between private practice in in-house is sometimes the question that we ask our external counsel on whom we rely very heavily and we have great relationships with, like just because we have a large in-house team, we use external counsel extensively, like they bring tons of value to the table, which I can talk about more if you're interested in that. But the way that I describe the difference between in-house and private practice is in private practice, we're often asking the question, what can we do? What does the law say we can do? The question that I get asked and the question that my team gets asked is, what should we do? What should we do? Here's what the law says. Here's what's fair to our clients. Here's what the regulators are going to think. Here's how it's going to land on a client. You're taking into a much broader range of perspectives when you answer the question, what should we do? And to me, that's way more interesting. There's much more complexity in it. You're informed by, you know, the organization's risk appetite, our strategy, what are we trying to achieve? But that's that's the difference. And so, you know, I spend my time on those kinds of things and a lot of time on leadership and succession planning. After you and I are done, I'm spending an hour with my leadership team talking about our top talent, what are our development plans for them? How are we gonna retain them? How are we gonna keep them engaged? You know, do they see a path? Like I, it's one of the reasons why I joined Sun Life. We have an incredible focus on talent. We take it really, really seriously. Um, you know, I mean, we don't manufacture anything you know, physical, not chairs, not tables, not, you know, compute, nothing. We have products and services. Our biggest resource is our people. And so um, I spend a lot of time on, on those kinds of issues. You know, when you talked about how you landed uh, the role at Sun Life, your current one, um, you mentioned that the mandate was to reimagine. Mm-hmm the legal department so mm -hmm. i wanted to talk about innovation sure in your legal department or in legal departments in large organizations in general because yeah. of yeah. course you have you have the you have the scope you have the view from where yeah. you are to be able yeah. to talk about that yeah so, and there are several issues here in the you know 10 or 15 minutes remaining I, I i was hoping we could just hop over those issues sure and you're, you're the kind of guest i could talk to for five hours but you know you're very kind not. i have to return you to your senior <laughs> management team uh in, in 15 minutes so i understand that but so my first question is about resolving insurance claims and of course i mostly acted on the plaintiff side in mm -hmm. insurance claims mm -hmm. and uh uh for that reason, I know plaintiffs' lawyers and I know defense lawyers. 
Yeah. Uh, I work much closer with insurance defense lawyers, with plaintiff's lawyers, because that's who you work with on the file, the opposing sure. counsel. Yeah. And I have a skewed perspective. Mm -hmm. In general, uh, litigators always think about what can go wrong. They don't think about what will go right. Yes. So in my view, uh, so my question is, why is it so expensive to resolve insurance claims? Why do we need lawyers? Uh, uh, the courtroom is... is uh, filled with highly educated people who are charging very high rates. Uh, I'm not even talking about judges who are some of the best people in the country when it comes to uh, intellect and knowledge. Yeah. And and then it takes also years to arrive uh, in that courtroom for, for the trial. Yeah. Is but Or is the share of these disputes very small? Is the, Does the uh, insurance industry work well overall? Is my perspective completely skewed or is there an issue that people at your table actually think about and talk about? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, I can't uh, I don't know what I can say about the fact that the wheels of justice turn slowly. Right. Like that, 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 that is, you know, I think it's frustrating. I think it's unfair. Um, you know, we, we, we experience it to a certain extent in, in the same way that plaintiff's lawyers do, right? Like we, we would like to resolve things, you know, quickly as, as well. It's, it's to everyone's benefit. And if I could speak for a moment about, you know, a lot of the litigation that we do um, are disability lawsuits. So someone is experiencing, you know, some kind of serious um, health event. And so as much as we can, we try to move quickly and we try to, you know, prevent a lawsuit in the first place. We have um, what we think is a very fair and transparent, um, you know, appeals process so that people, if people disagree with our decision, they can come to us and, you know, appeal that. And sometimes, uh, you know, those matters are resolved, you know, at that stage if it's not resolved to their satisfaction and they feel that they need to, you know, bring a lawsuit, uh, then of course, you know, we'll defend it. But, you know, we also pay a lot of claims to the satisfaction of our clients. And so I understand that your perspective would be that, you know, there are a, li a lot of, you know, disability lawsuits. Um, and I, you know, I don't have the numbers sort of at my fingertips pull at, but I, but I can tell you that, um, a lot of claims are paid and resolved to the satisfaction of everyone. Um, we do have this appeals process that clients are able to take advantage of. And then, you know, for those clients that feel that, um, you know, the result is still not, you know, what fair to them or, or, or reasonable, then yes, you know, there, there is litigation that ensues. We do a lot of mediations. You, you may know that, um, you know, we resolve, a lot of lawsuits in mediation and even you know we try and resolve them before mediation so we have all kinds of strategies to resolve those lawsuits as quickly as we can um you know there's obviously some kind of a disagreement if 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 someone has started a lawsuit so i don't i don't you know un underestimate that or or diminish um you know the importance of it but I can tell you that we work really hard to resolve those as quickly as we can within the framework that, you know, we all have to work in. 
One of the biggest tasks of insurance companies is to track risk. At least mm -hmm. that's what I understand insurance companies do. They got to monitor risk because yeah. their bottom line depends on it directly. Yeah. Uh, do you have any perspective on how risk changed over the last several decades because of technological innovation, healthcare innovation? Uh, is there more risk now or is there less risk? For example, there is talk of self-driving cars eliminating motor vehicle accidents, right? Right. And that's relevant, of course, to automobile insurance uh, uh, companies uh, and personal injury lawyers because the, the work might be disappearing for them, right? Right, right. Do you have any perspective on how risk evolved over the last several decades uh, uh, let's attribute it to technology and technological progress. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a tremendous increase in the risk that all organizations face. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're quite right to point out that, you know, we have an intense focus on risk management because we're an insurance company, we're highly regulated, you know, both at the federal level um, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions is what we call our prudential regulator. So, you know, kind of our financial stability um, and prudential type risks. And then we've got various provincial regulators on securities and insurance side that are more focused on, you know, kind of market conduct and, and client type risks. But, you know, the types of risk that we now have to manage for are are much more complex that, than they used to be. You can imagine that we are incredibly focused on things like cybersecurity. Um, you know, we are very focused on sustainability and climate change. Um, you know, the even the regulators themselves. Um, are now focusing on those things and, uh, you know, asking us, you know, how we're managing them um, from a client perspective, what we see in terms of regulation um, in the insurance and asset management space is this focus on treating clients fairly. And, you know, what does that mean? I mean, that that is you know, that, that's a tremendous obligation that we have to treat our clients fairly every step of the way from the minute that we start to think about a new product, how it's designed, how it's marketed, how it's sold, how we administer it, how we handle complaints, you know, if there's litigation, how we handle that. So, I mean, the complexity of the risk um, of, of the type and magnitude of the risks that we have to manage is incredible. And I would say, you know, we're very well set up to do that. Our, our shareholders, our regulators, our clients, they expect us to be. Privacy risk is another thing that we're incredibly focused on. We have very, very sensitive, highly confidential information about our clients. We have a huge obligation to protect that and, and make sure that, you know, it's treated properly. We're not using it for purposes other than, you know, what we said it would. So yeah, there, you know, risk management, that that's, I would say like generally it's part of everyone's job at Sun Life in some way, shape or form. We're kind of constantly managing that risk. We live in uncertain times and, uh, I don't even need to explain why I think everybody understands that you're, answer right now also highlighted some new risks that didn't exist before 
you talked about risk, insurable risks, risks, right? You talked about risks to um, uh, your insurance policyholders that will trigger um, certain events where the insurance company will make payments. But in, in the life insurance business, or the other side, the flip side of life insurance business, as you said, is wealth management. That's the foundation of, of life insurance business. Without uh, significant assets underlying your life insurance business, there is no life insurance business. What about the market risk today? What if the market tanks? What if there is a significant global financial event that wipes out equity? Yeah. Yeah. What is uh, what what steps um, uh, what what steps is your company taking in that direction? What is the thinking? What is the discussion at your table about? Yeah, I think you know, and I want I want to be clear. I'm not uh, an, an investment expert. Um, I I cert we certainly talk about you know that kind of risk at the Canadian executive table. You know, at the executive table, at our board table. So um, obviously, it's it's a huge area of focus. What I would say at a high level, Poulet, is that you know we are a well diversified company. We operate in different markets with different products, you know, different types of clients that in and of itself provides us with protection so that if something is going wrong, you know, or, 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 or the markets are not doing well in one, you know, jurisdiction, maybe it's not exactly the same in, in another jurisdiction. So we have, you know, that kind of diversification. And of course, the assets in which we invest to support all of our liabilities are very, very diversified as well. So we have, you know, highly expertized um, investment experts on our team across the organization who pay a lot of attention to the diversity of our assets, you know, the duration of them, uh, jurisdiction, like all of those things. Um, I mean, as you said earlier, we are, you know, managing risks of all kinds and that market risk, especially right now, it's one of the ones that we're very focused on. Trish, I want to thank you for this wonderful interview. I want to wish you all the best in your career. Uh, you certainly taught quite a few lessons today in this interview. You taught me a few lessons. I'm sure I can't wait to share this interview with our, uh, with our audience. Uh, thank you so much, Trish. Thank you, Paulette. It's been a real pleasure.